Houston, we have a podcast. Welcome to the official podcast of the NASA Johnson Space Center, Episode 268, Astromaterials 3D. I'm Pat Ryan. On this podcast, we talk with scientists, engineers, astronauts, and other folks about their part in America's space exploration program. And today, we're going to show you how you can play with some moon rocks. When NASA landed six Apollo missions on the moon, each of those pair of astronauts had some quantity of moon rocks and dust with them when their lunar excursion module jumped off of the gray surface headed for rendezvous with the command module to bring them home to Earth. All told, 842 pounds of lunar rocks, core samples, pebbles, sand, and dust came back to Earth. That's all. And it all came right here to NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston to a building over on the other side of the campus from where I'm sitting today. From there, the people and facilities in what is today called the Astromaterials Research and Exploration Science Division, ARIES, examined and cataloged those pieces of the moon, studied them, and have and still do administer a program that sends samples to scientists for research. Too bad regular folks like you and me can't see them, right? Well, we can, some of them, thanks to a program that has created a virtual library of NASA's space rock collections in high-resolution, three-dimensional image models that you can access from your home computer. And not just stuff from the moon, but meteorites collected in Antarctica. Perhaps one day, samples return to Earth from comets and from Mars. The science principal investigator and project lead for the Astromaterials 3D project is Erica Blumenfeld, who describes herself as a transdisciplinary artist whose work focuses on stories of connection across the cosmos, stories that intersect with art and science and nature and culture. She has a Bachelor of Fine Arts from the Parsons School of Design and a Master of Science in Conservation Studies with distinction from University College London. And besides her work with NASA, she's worked with other science and research institutions, including Scripps Institution of Oceanography, the McDonald Observatory, and the South African National Antarctic Program. She's with us today, along with Jeremy Kent, who started work in ARIES in the Astromaterials Curation Group in 2013, working on curation and processing of extraterrestrial geologic samples, which I think just sounds really cool. He has a bachelor's in geology from Michigan Tech and a master's in geology from the University of Houston and is now an Apollo sample curation processor who manages the Apollo Thin Section Lab. And he's worked as part of the interdisciplinary team that ran with the Astromaterials 3D idea and turned it into a reality. How we can put moon rocks in your virtual hands. Here we go. The chances are good that everybody who's listening to the podcast today has seen pictures of moon rocks. The chances are also good that the close-up images you saw were originally captured at NASA's Johnson Space Center in Houston the home of the agency's Astromaterials Research and Exploration Sciences Division. That's known as ARIES. In December 2020, a group of folks in ARIES publicly launched a means for you and me to see and manipulate some of these extraterrestrial samples up close from anywhere. It's called Astromaterials 3D. Just search that phrase. You'll find it online. And today we're going to find out where the idea came from and how it was developed. I'd like to start by sketching out some details of the Astromaterials Lab and start with Jeremy Kent, who is an Apollo sample curation processor there. Jeremy, a thumbnail sketch of the Astromaterials Lab and, and its purpose and the work that gets done there. Okay, so there are actually several different uh, labs within the Astromaterials Curation Department. And the particular ones that I work in are related to the Apollo samples themselves. So the pristine uh, sample laboratory is the big one that most people would ha have in mind if they have thought of or looked into the sample processing yeah. that, that goes on there. And I work in a couple of the other auxiliary labs as well. 
What are the other, is the Pristine Sample Lab part of its actual name? Yes. Ooh. Yes. Okay. <laughs> so Pristine has a very technical definition for us. It means the, the samples that are stored and processed in there have never been exposed to Earth's atmosphere. Ah, okay. Yes. So then we have a separate lab for samples that have been exposed to the atmosphere and then another lab for samples that have been returned by uh, PIs, principal investigators, after their study. After they've been sent out for yes. study and come after, back. Exactly. Okay. And another lab that I run called the Thin Section Lab, the Apollo Thin Section Lab, where I make essentially microscope slides of the moon rocks. Because I'm not involved in anything like that. I don't understand how you cut rocks into thin sections. <laughs> yes, um, it, it involves a lot of epoxy work, a lot of grinding and polishing and low-speed um, circular saw work. And uh, what you do is you, you end up uh, with a very thin slice of rock that's mounted to a silica slide. And that, that rock is about 30, 35 microns thick. Give me a, a how do I gauge how <laughs> big a micron? That's is? less than half the width of one of your hairs on your head. Uh -huh. Okay. Um, among the these four labs, then what is how would you describe the goal and the work that's done there? So the primary goal of the labs is first and foremost to keep the samples as safe as possible and in in as. Uh, close to their original condition as, as can be maintained. And then after that, it's to make them accessible to the scientific community for research that they've been approved to uh, perform on the samples. And, and that's been going on with samples from the moon for over 50 years now, right? Yes, yes, it has. Um, and there have been a couple of different iterations of the lab. It's moved from place to place in the building over that time um, before the current uh, wing of the building that the lab uh, resides in now actually existed. Right. You mentioned that there are different labs for rocks that have either been exposed to Earth's environment or hmm. not. What is what? Why is the uh, the environment that these samples are kept in so important? Why, why do you have to keep them segregated? Oh, uh, yes, because exposure to Earth's atmosphere um, will chemically and permanently change the, the rocks themselves. The oxygen and water vapor in the air will more or less make uh, samples start to rust a little bit. Rust? Yes, um, or otherwise oxidize. Um, there is a fair amount of... Uh, iron metal in the lunar samples. Uh, most of that is from meteorite impacts into the surface of the moon that distributes little grains of metal mm. uh, all throughout the, the uh, rocks and dust that are there on the surface. Neat. Uh, tell me how you came to work there. Uh, tell me a little bit about your education and the background that, that got you to slicing rocks from the moon. Sure, sure. So I originally got my bachelor's degree in geology from Michigan Technological University, and I moved to Houston after I got that degree. I was working for Schlumberger for two and a half years or so, and then I uh, went back to school at um, University of Houston to get my master's. And while I was there, I was talking to the different professors to see what sort of research opportunities they had available. Um, I was thinking I would probably work in or study structural geology or something like that, uh, something that would be applicable to my previous experience mm -hmm. in the oil and gas field. Um, but I found out that I, if I wanted, I had the option to study Mars or moon rocks, and that was something I just couldn't say no to, even though I didn't know <laughs> what I would do with that experience. I, it, I couldn't pass it up, and I chose uh, studying moon rocks. I was studying lunar meteorites especially. Mm -hmm. And um, through that process, um, I did some of my data collection research uh, here at Johnson Space Center, because it's just down the street, basically, from U of H. And at the time of my graduation, a job opening happened to open up. I was very fortunate in that regard, and um, the rest is history. <laughs> As they say, <laughs> to coin the phrase. Yes. Now, Erica Blumenfeld is a transdisciplinary artist and we'll work our way up to 
how you got connected with Aries. But first, would you educate me about what transdisciplinary means in this context and how you became interested in art at all? Yes, I love this question. Um, thank you for asking it. I think I chose transdisciplinarity as uh, my title because I, I love answering this question. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, but it's also something I aspire to in my work. And so, you know, the simple definition of transdisciplinary is simply beyond discipline. Um, but I like to think of it more as the unity of knowledge frameworks uh, that go beyond uh, disciplinary perspectives. Mm -hmm. So not limited to one discipline. Yes, but also even even perhaps even creating a new knowledge framework because of this unity, right? That where where there's not these silos of discipline, but but more of a coming together and a unity of knowledge um, towards a new knowledge framework. And I think um, our world so needs that, and so. Mm -hmm. So I aspire to that in my work to the best of my ability. Give me a trip through your professional background. How did you uh, become interested in art and and some of the, the things that you have uh, been involved with? Yes. Um, I've, I've always been an artist um, since I was a small person. <laughs> um, but I think it was in, it was in high school. I had a, a, high school that had an incredible arts uh, program. And I became immediately fascinated with, with photography. And I think, you know, I've, I've always been interested in these, in these places where art and science meet. And I think photography was the perfect medium for me to yeah. start to embark on an artistic practice where, you know, there's, there is this meeting of optics and chemistry and, and artistry inherent in the medium. Um, and so I started there. I did my Bachelor of Fine Arts in uh, photography at Parsons School of Design um, and then went directly into my career as an artist um, and have been working as a professional artist. And as I started to collaborate more and more with scientists through my curiosities and interest in natural phenomena, um, I also started to embark on a more uh, cross-disciplinary, interdisciplinary, mm -hmm. and now transdisciplinary um, um, effort. And, and really, my work now is, is far more research-based. Um, I think it was always research-based, but um, I think you know, now I really um, embrace the research capacity of my, of my practice. It's maybe just be an expression of my ignorance, but I, I would tend to think of artists as people who generally work alone. And you're talking about most of your work as being in collaboration with others. Yes. Yes. Um, I do. I do also work alone. I, I think there's, I need that solitude for, for that part of my, my creative practice. Um, but there is something about engaging with other minds, other, other innovative ideas and and also stepping beyond the confines of what I think we do think of as art um, and and trying out creative ideas in the world in new ways. And I think I've always been drawn to do that. Um, and my interest in collaborating with scientists and research institutions, which I've done been doing now for 20 years, um, has really been because I'm curious. I'm inherently curious about what other people are learning and where I can apply my creative abilities um, in other ways. So you're collaborating with artists, uh, with scientists, and then now your collaboration with scientists has brought you to the Johnson Space Center and moon geologists. So <laughs> how, how does that, how did that happen? Oh gosh. Well, the short version of that oh, answer. We have plenty of time. <laughs> is that I'm literally obsessed with rocks. Uh-huh. Um and but there is a longer version of that story, so I'd love to share that. Yes. Um okay, so back in 2011, um you know, I've always been a, I've always been interested in rocks. I think even as a child like picking up rocks along, you know, a shoreline or a mountain 
pathway, there's this sense of the unknown and the mysterious in these in these rocks. I think you know there's rock collectors everywhere understand this, right? Mm -hmm. um, there's something just inherent in the material. But um, in 2011, I had this incredible opportunity. I was invited to be an artist in resident um, on board a uh, sailboat in um, with a group of scientists and artists who, uh, by this incredible arts organization out of the UK called Cape Farewell. And their goal was to discuss issues of climate change and how that's culturally relevant and to bring artists and scientists together to have these conversations. And we were specifically sailing the, um, the Scottish Isles and to meet the communities there that were being affected um, by the rising seas. And so... What I what I became interested in on that journey was was the incredible rock formations there. I mean, just the basalt pillars along the coastline just absolutely blew my mind, and and the Louisian gneiss, um, which is just I mean, it's just the epitome of mystery to mm -hmm. me. And I had this I had this experience as I was driving through an area near Loch Ness um, on way to the boat where we drove through a road cut. And um, I'm always looking at the at road cuts because, you know, you can see the strata of, of the rock layers. Mm -hmm. And it's such an incredible script there, right? There's something happening in those layers that I want to learn about. I remember seeing those as a kid yes. in family drives where you're going and what is all What that? is yeah. that? Right. Mm -hmm. And so I had this, like, I really paid attention to this one. I was really curious. Anyway, so fast forward a couple of months later, I'm, it's winter. I'm watching this, like, nerdy documentary on geology that actually was really excellent. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it was sort of like a murder mystery for geology, like, dun, 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 <laughs> how did this happen? Um, and it always ended up with subduction. Um, uh. Anyway, so, um, so I'm watching this just riveted. And, um, and this particular episode was about the area around Loch Ness, which where I had just been. So I was particularly curious. And then there's this moment where the camera pans to this geologist standing by a road cut. And it was the same road cut I had just been mm. through a couple of months previous. And this geologist starts talking about actually what's happening in these layers of rock and describes the fact that these rocks aren't just like the rocks in the Catskills in upstate New York, but they are the same rock, that these continents had once been joined and that these, this rock formation was a place where you could see that formation. And my mind just exploded wow. because I started to see this inherent connection. Um, and how could we start to talk about the, com you know, start to talk about ideas of connection at a planetary level, right? Um, so then he said something that I've never forgotten. And if any geologist that I've spoken with at some point when they're talking about their, their point of research um, will always eventually say, but the story is in the rock. And this idea that, that rocks are scrolls of knowledge became sort of the vantage point that I, I embarked on after that. And was really, really compelled by this idea that, that, that there are stories in rocks that need to be told or that can be told. And that if you know the language of of the rock then you can you can hear these stories mm -hmm. jeremy do you agree this there's stories in the rocks oh yes absolutely <laughs> um that's that yeah erica's absolutely right that's something any geologist will yeah. will totally agree with and mm -hmm. and that's certainly especially true with the apollo rocks um researchers are still very actively uh, looking at the rocks right. and discerning discerning all kinds of new information about them um learning about the formation history of the moon and the relationship of the moon to the earth and um, what its uh, original composition was, the moon and like the impactor that struck the earth to create the moon and all sorts of things like that. I maybe 
diverted before you'd finished the story because how does that documentary about that road cut in Scotland end up <laughs> in the Aries here on campus in Houston? Yes. So the story continues. Um, so essentially, I at the time, I decided to go back and do a master's. Um, and it's so I did a I enrolled in a program. It was a master's of science and conservation studies, so heritage conservation studies. And I was interested in in essentially looking at the relationship between nature and culture, okay, and why they have been sort of systemically separated from each other, where whereas in my thinking, they are sort of inextricably linked. so, so I was looking at the heritage field and trying to understand, like, why are they, um, how have they been separated since the UNESCO protocols? Anyway, I could, I could wax <laughs> on that for a long time. Um, anyway, my thesis was, was essentially on looking at the natural night sky and how we could, um, how it's significant the natural night sky has been to our culture and our, you know, across, across cultures, across timelines, across you know, um, the stories and um, the stories that we tell and and our mythology and our science and our, you know, philosophy and our art and it goes on and on. Um, and so as it being such a source of, of, of inspiration to us across time, to our whole species, it's, I think that we should preserve and protect our night sky. So this was, this was um, the work that I was doing um, for my thesis. But it was a science degree. And at some point, uh, my advisor said, well, um, this is great. You know, this is a great theoretical paper and, and, and effort, um, but you have to do some science. <laughs> <laughs> I was and, hoping you weren't going to notice that part. <laughs> and so, so, you know, she asked me, you know, you have to pick, or she said, you need to pick a material. And my colleagues were, were working with, you know, pottery shards and ancient metallurgy and and weaving techniques and you know and things looking that, for something things different. that things that I'm actually really interested in. Um but what I decided was I I said, well I want to choose meteorites. And she looked at me and she's like, I'm not a you know, this isn't a geology program. <laughs> like, and I said, yeah, but but meteorites have been revered by cultures across time. And in fact uh, the director of of my program in that moment had just completed a paper um, doing analysis on these five Egyptian beads that were five thousand years old and had just determined that they in fact were made from meteorites. Wow. And so there was this long pause, and she said, "Okay, I'll let you do it." And so um, the program was quite new, and I had uh, almost full access to an analysis lab. Um, and so I started doing. Uh, scientific analysis on this on this meteorite and learning what that means like learning what it means to see into um the the structure the chemical structure of of these rocks and i had what i like to call my carl sagan moment where <laughs> i'm watching the peaks come in um and i start to realize that this rock and i are made of the same the same stuff hmm. and it occurred to me in that moment how important it is that the story of these rocks be told and that, that this idea that we are connected to something greater um, through, that, that the story can be told through the cosmochemistry um, that we can study within these rocks that tell us about the solar system. This was so, it felt so important to me. And I, this question came into my mind, could I hold a rock in my hand that told the story of the whole cosmos? And of course, this is a poetic idea. This yeah. was, you know, it was, it was meant to be a poetic idea. But in truth, the, the astro-material samples that, that are held within NASA's uh, collections actually do tell the story. So I contacted NASA. Cold um, out of the blue. Cold mm -hmm. out of the blue. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, my um, my colleagues like to say, "Yeah, she cold called us." Uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but but you know, as brazen as that sound, it's also true. And I think there was this part of me that was so passionately um, inspired by this idea of of 
trying to find a way to make these samples more accessible, knowing that they are protected for posterity, for research, and that even though a certain number of them are allocated for education and also for for exhibition um, for the public, but that that you know the lion's share of the of the collection is is inaccessible to most people for the reasons that Jeremy explained a few minutes ago. Precisely. So that Precisely. makes what you have in mind a lot harder. Well, gratefully, um, the department was really interested in the proposal. So I. I came in 2013. They amazingly opened the door to have me come and have a conversation with them. And um, and so I did, and I explained what what I was doing and why. And and they were curious, and they were interested, and they said, okay, what, what would you want to do? And I said, have you ever made 3D models of moon rocks and meteorites before? And they said, no. And I said, well, let's do that. And, and so that's how it began. And I... Um, Actually, it's a funny story, too, because um, so that was in January 2013. And so we developed sort of a an initial, you know, initial pathway to how we might make this work. Because at that point, you don't have a process to make 3D models. At that point, I did not. I had, I, had an idea. <laughs> I had an idea, but I had never tried to do what I was imagining, mm -hmm. you know, the vision that I had for Astromaterials 3D at that time was formed, but, but how to get there, the pathway to get there was, was not formed. Tell me about how your work along with the, the people and the Aries lab here developed that, yes. that process. Well, funny enough, um, that's also a long story, but yes, <laughs> but but funny enough, the first my first trip back in August of 2013 um, was I came back for a week to do just preliminary scouting, like you know who could I talk to that might be I might be able to bring on to a team. Like I was trying to form a team. I was mm -hmm. trying to understand how the protocols worked, how I could um, work in the labs, and and it's funny because. The first day that I was um, was brought in to to learn about the protocols of the lab was also Jeremy's first day. Ah. Yeah, it and, was my first day on the job. And so we essentially <laughs> did the um, you know the the tour together. We did, yeah. yeah. The orientation. The orientation. <laughs> yes. Yes. Exactly. Yeah, that, that's definitely a, a big memory of mine. Um, my very first day on the job, walking in through the air shower with yep. with Erica here and mm -hmm. getting the whole tour of the whole lab and learning about how all the processes work in there. Before we go too far away from it, explain what an air shower is. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so there are... There might be some people out there that aren't, aren't familiar with that. There are different stages for, for entering the lab. You don't just open a door and walk in. Right. Um, so there is a dirty gowning room, and then uh, basically you open the first door, you walk through, you clean your shoes off on a sticky mat and put on uh, little shoe covers so that you're not tracking in any debris with you. Then you can go into the clean change room, and in there you put on what we call a bunny suit. So it's a full jumpsuit. Um, that along... matches the booties. Oh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, no, it doesn't. Oh, so well. the booties are blue, and the bunny suit is white. That's why we call it a bunny suit. Mm -hmm. And um, so, yes, it's a one-piece jumpsuit that zips up in the front, snaps at your collar, your wrists, and your ankles. Then you put on additional boots over top of those, which are white, so they do match the bunny suit. <laughs> well, thank goodness. Along with a hat that covers your hair and gloves that cover your hands. And the goal is to prevent contamination, you bringing contamination into Correct. the lab areas. Yes, the whole setup of the lab is designed to protect the rocks from us. <laughs> Yes. Okay. And not the other way around. Yeah. Um, and so once you have that whole bunny suit um, in place, you're wearing it, then you step into the air shower. So the air shower has a gentle laminar flow of air from passing from the ceiling down through the floor, and it carries away any dust particles that mm. you brought with you. From before, the last room. <laughs> from the last room, yes, until you, uh, before you go into the, into the actual lab to work. 
So you are involved from the very first day that Erica showed up to try to to devise the process for how to how to make these three D models. Give, give me yeah. a, a sense of of the work that you had to do to to create this this process. Oh boy! So um, there are a lot of moving parts okay. to this project, um, and there are enormous number of different disciplines that come together to do this. So there's you know. Um, image scientists and imagery analysis analysts and photogrammetrists and cure you know astro materials curators and um i mean the list goes on and on actually um so the first thing that we that i that i had to develop was a process to image the rocks and that's um perhaps sounds easier than it actually is so the rocks have to stay inside of the nitrogen cabinet that they are um, because because they are protected from from the air. A cabinet filled with nitrogen. And I, yes, exactly, okay. and a cabinet filled with nitrogen, which means that the only way that I can look at the rock is through glass. Um, and so these cabinets were designed um, originally for certain types of scientific analysis. There's a, a port on one end of the cabinets that's called the scientific observation port. And that has a flat top and two uh, and a, a, f a front, a small window at the front that um, you can see into, and then it has the gloves. But um, but in order to get a, th a a high resolution and you know what we call research grade, um, ver you know, three D model with a three D model that is extremely high resolution with extreme um, detail. I have to use a, a well. I used a medium format high resolution camera, okay. which is large and cumbersome, and it wasn't built to take a picture through a small window and a, a nitrogen tiny tank. little window. Yeah. <laughs> and not just that, but um, images at fifteen degrees around the entire circumference of the rock. Meaning you you move correct either the camera or the rock uh, at that increment in right. order to right. go all the way around. So. Essentially, the first thing I had to do was was design something that went that could go into the cabinet that could rotate the rock. So that, in other words, the the rock handling the rock um, the least was the goal. And so, I ended up designing and building a um, rotation stage with my team that was made of. Um, the very few materials that are allowed in the cabinet. Okay. Um, and only three. Only, only, three. only three. Yeah. yeah. Other than the rocks themselves, only okay. stainless steel, aluminum, and Teflon are allowed inside. Yeah. And so, and it's a certain kind of of aluminum. So I, I was able to to make it out of aluminum, um, but I was trying to make marks. So we were using this rotation stage. I had to be able to mark it not only with degrees but also with targets, so that the re the three D reconstruction. Um, software would would recognize and be able to help us create um, know which images to put next to one put another. together, but also yeah, but and also scaling is a real issue. We want to be as scientifically accurate as possible, okay. so we wanted to make sure we could we could achieve uh, proper scaling. And so this required making a mark on a surface that can't have ink or pigment on it. And so, so these were some of the the initial challenges. How do you how do you create something that's um, that's with protocol, you know, in, inside protocol? So, developing new new technology, developing new um, equipment. That was the first thing. And then once I had a prototype of that, and that was certified to go into the cabinet, I was able to then work at trying to figure out how to achieve different elevations so that I could get the angles. And because we're talking about 3D models all correct. 360 degrees correct. around a, a, any and all of the, the samples. Right. Yes. And so where Jeremy came in on, on that is, you know, so every time, every time I would put a rock on the stage, um, the rotation stage, um, that had to be handled by a processor. So Jeremy and and some of his colleagues also would help, but um, Jeremy was really um, really provided an enormous amount of support for 
for this project in that way. And so there was there were moments where, you know, we would have to, you know, he would have to put the rock on the stage and then I would image image and you know rotate in every direction so essentially there's like between 240 and 480 images that I take per rock mm. in order to create the stitching for the for the reconstruction um and then you know halfway through or once I finished the one hemisphere we would have to flip the rock and I would have to photograph the the okay. other hemisphere and actually <laughs> mm -hmm. this is a funny little story is that um so my phone because I was because I had to text Jeremy so many times, hey, are you available to flip a rock? <laughs> My phone, whenever I would pull up Jeremy's name, would start offering words <laughs> to me like, flip a rock became a phrase that my phone actually learned, learned. <laughs> um, because, you know, over the course of the three years that I imaged uh, the rocks during the, the final phase, um, I imaged 60 rocks, 30 of which, actually a little more than 30 of which were, were lunar samples and, and some of them needed to be flipped more than mm -hmm. once. <laughs> <laughs> we got pretty efficient at it. Yes, we did. Yes, well, we yeah, did. I bet. Well, how long did it take? I'm, I'm still thinking that you're working out and developing the tools and the process for how you're going to do it because NASA being NASA, you're going to have to show this to somebody and get their, get their blessing. To, in order to approve it. How long did it take to, to develop to the tools in the process? Yes. Well, so great question. Um, so the initial process was, so I, I came for that one week in, in August, 2013 and, and developed a pathway and a, and a, and a small team of, of people that we thought we could try to make a stab at this. And then um, I came back in, I guess it was the spring of 2014, so the following year, um, and was offered an opportunity to stay for three months and do a feasibility study. So that was the, my real opportunity to work through a prototype of the rotation stage um, to work. I actually was able to work with a moon rock on site in the lab, develop a preliminary approach to to imaging. And at the end of that time frame, and that that was actually when we also started to incorporate what's called the XCT scans. So these are so what I'm I'm doing in the lab is I'm taking the exterior high resolution imagery of the rock manually. That's not we're not scanning. It's not a 3D scanner. Um, we I do all of the that exterior imagery for the texture of the 3D model manually. Mm. But then we okay. also do what's called a, a XCT scan. So that's X-ray computed tomography, kind of like if you had your bone, uh, your bones scanned um, okay. to see them. It's it's X-ray, um, very um, at just a different intensity for for a rock, and um, and the rocks are scanned in order to see into the the interior of them. Um, and because X-rays are um, correlated to it. Uh, atomic weight, um, you can start to actually understand what these rocks are made of. So, so the idea came into being, actually it was, um, it was the idea of my colleague, um, Kevin Beaulieu, who's, who was one of the original team members, um, on the research grant. And he was, he thought that it would be a really cool idea to, to include the XCT and we all agreed. And so then it became not just making 3D models, but how do you actually then fuse these two models together? And that was really mm. the innovation of the project. So at the end of those three months of feasibility study, we were, we produced the first 3D model of a moon rock that had ever been made. Nice. <laughs> and we were super proud of that. Um, and and um, and so we presented our our results to to the department. And after my presentation, where we showed that we could make the model and correlate it with the XCT, um, Eileen Stansbury, um, who was chair at the time and still is, um, she stood up and and said, "We we have to do this." <laughs> and that was. That was amazing to me. Um, and she and then my colleagues who I was working with um, encouraged me to apply for an official NASA grant to 
to perform the research. So we did that the following year in 2015. Uh, we put together a Rose's PDART uh, a proposal, and we were awarded um, that proposal to start work in the following year in 2016. At that point, do you know how much, how long the process is going to take or how many samples you're going to be able to image or, or do you have a goal? We did. I mean, through the, through the proposal process, we, we determined that we believed we could achieve 60 rocks over the three years. Okay. Um, it, it took us four and then we had to build and design a website and create a, a software application to actually combine the two data sets in a viewer that could be available for the public. And so we did that over the, the, the pandemic year. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, and, I, and I do want to hear about that, but it occurs to me to ask now, there are something over 800 pounds of moon rocks that were brought back. How do you determine which 60 rocks you wanted to, to look at, to, to, to run through this process in order to create 3D image of Yes, so that that was kind of a collaboration process. Uh, some particular rocks of unique significance, like the first rock that was collected on Apollo 11. Okay. And other rocks of particularly large size or scientific interest. Um, things that were also very representative of the different types of rocks that were found in the, in the collection. Mm -hmm. So we wanted to get a, a broad... Uh, representative um, collection, I guess, of... of well, I, I'm pretty representative of people who would think that, you know, well, moon rocks are moon rocks, and but you're telling me there are different kinds of moon rocks. Give oh, me, yes. Give me a sense of what what is the differences, what, what uh, different categories are we talking about, if that's the right word to describe it. So when you look up at the moon in the sky, it has light-colored areas and dark-colored areas, right? So right. those those regions represent predominantly much different types of rocks. Oh, okay. So the light-colored areas are very low-density rock type called a northosite, and the dark-colored dark areas are primarily basalt. And then through billions of years of impact bombardment, these rocks have been broken up into pieces, scattered around, and fused together to form new rocks either just physically or by melting them and producing new rocks through the melt. And so that produces a, a variety of different types of rocks. And some of these impact events can even excavate um, much deeper rocks from, from the lower part of the crust or maybe even the, the mantle of the moon. You know, like big meteor strikes that exactly. are digging holes and pulling material up to the surface. That's correct. And so you're picking 60 samples that are you're going to you're I, I assume you're trying to demonstrate the breadth of of what is what we have in the collection. Exactly. Which may not be what is all there. <laughs> That's correct. Yeah, Jeremy's completely right. And and you know, we we worked with both the Apollo lunar sample collection, but we also worked with the Antarctic meteorite collection. Right, right. And so so we worked with um, Ryan Ziegler, who's the the curator of the Apollo samples, and uh, Kevin Ryder, who's the curator of the um, meteorite samples, and essentially came up with a strategy for for the three years that we were imaging. And essentially, what we what we decided was that you know year one we would focus on all the rock stars. So <laughs> so you know. What you did there. The, <laughs> The, the, you know, the high-profile, high-priority samples that have been, have been well-researched um, and are beloved either culturally or scientifically or both. Um, and so, so that was year one. And then year two, um, we wanted to really offer um, opportunities for people to study sam samples that hadn't been well-studied. And there are a number of them, actually. And so I was particularly interested in the samples that had the highest level of pristinity, so that had the least amount of um, sample removed from it since it had been on the moon, which I thought was was so interesting. Like it was 
almost just like it was mm -hmm. when it was the on the least menu. tampered with exactly. by puny humans. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Um, and then year three was was an effort to show how astromaterials 3D could work alongside normal lab work. And so we left that year sort of open to what were the interests going on in the lab for you know science oriented interest or what rocks had been had been you know were out and available um and we and that ended up being um we ended up filling in some some missing areas from the first two years also so so that you know like jeremy said that we had a really um a, a, as broad a spectrum of the different type of ro types of rocks within each collection um and if you look at the website, we have we have you know samples from each of the Apollo missions, and we have samples from um, you know on the Apollo side of things, and then on the meteorite side of things, you know we have meteorites from the Moon and Mars and and Vesta and um, and you know the the inner the inner belt, mm -hmm. um, different different types with organics organic materials, some that are referencing, you know, the the types of, of samples we might hope to see in Bennu when OSIRIS-REx lands next year. Next year. I understand why these 60 rocks were chosen in order to represent the different categories of, of rocks we're dealing with. In working with them for all these years, do you find that you have favorite rocks? I love this question so much. <laughs> um, yes. That's what I live for. <laughs> I... I love, yeah, I have favorites, um, but my colleagues will tell you that I have so many favorites that it's almost a wonder if any of them really are my actual favorites. None but, of them realize they're your favorites. Yeah, because they're all my favorites. But um, so I, one that I really am particularly fascinated with is, um, it's a, a rock from Apollo 16. It's called 60025. And this is um, known as a pharaohan anorthosite. And why it captures my attention so much is that it's, it's one of the oldest rocks from the moon. And it's, it's thought to be 4.4 billion years old. Hmm. And it's a, it's a piece, literally. It's this beautiful um, crystalline rock that is... Um, is very uh, whitish in color, um, but it almost has a little bit of granularity. Um, but it's literally a, a piece of the original lunar crust. Um, and I find that to be just mind-blowing. And actually, um, Jeremy, would you love to tell the story of, of the, original, the original crust of the moon? Sure, sure. So... As I was saying before about the um, lighter colored areas on the moon right, being right. primarily an orthocyte, um, those rep or that region represents the uh, original primordial crust of the moon. Um, so it's thought that after the moon first formed by a giant impact event with the Earth that launched debris into orbit around the Earth, that debris coalesced and formed the moon, and it was still so hot that the entire surface of the moon would have been molten. And over time, as that molten material cooled off, the lightest minerals that began crystallizing out of that melt floated up to the surface because they were less dense than the molten material that they were okay. in. And the lightest mineral, uh, lowest density mineral found on the moon's surface is this anorthosite or anorthite mineral, which combined together forms anorthosite rock. And it also happens to be age dated as the oldest rock type on the moon. So that, um, that is how we come to believe that that is the original primordial crust of the moon. Yeah. And this is the kind of stuff I can learn on your website while looking at the 3D models. Yes. Mm -hmm. Sweet. Jeremy, what's your favorite rock? I don't have a specific favorite rock, but I have a favorite rock type, and that would be the coarse-grained basalts. Um, so... I, one of the labs that I work in, the Apollo Thin Section Lab, when I get to make thin sections out of coarse-grained basalts, they're so beautiful because they have these 
large interlocking crystals, and when you look at them through cross-polarized light once they're finished, they have such a beautiful range of different colors, blues and greens and reds and purples, various shades of gray, different textures, and they're all interlocking together. It, it's just gorgeous. In creating the 3D models, did you use the same technical setup that you did in the creation of the process, or did you figure out better ways to do it or better equipment that gave you higher resolution or you know, a, a more lifelike presentation uh, of, of these rocks? Well, the the mastery of the three D model making uh, is um, is thanks to my colleague Joseph Abersold, who who does does all of that process. So mm -hmm. so we work um, closely together because obviously the the images that I create need to work with the process um, that he works with in in the software so we use um he uses you know photogrammetric principles um but we work with uh, an off-the-shelf uh software to create to create the models but but because of the different uh surface characteristics of each of these rocks and some of them are more crystalline some of them are quite dark in the case of the meteorites some of them have really you know, dark fusion crusts. Um, the specular qualities of the surface um, react differently in in the software. So he, there's a lot of manual manual work that goes into the process of creating creating each model. Some artistry. Correct. Well, <laughs> yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, you mentioned earlier the uh, the XCT scanning can you give me a, a little better sense of of what that is and how that gets melded together with visual imagery that that I'm familiar with in order to create these these 3D models well jeremy why don't you t do you want to talk about sure. the ct and then i can talk about the fusion yeah, part that, of it? yeah. that works mm -hmm. um so the way that the xct works in in relation to the rocks is you you put the rock inside of the xct scanner and it sits on a pedestal and wait wait i thought everything had to be in the box <laughs> <laughs> okay yes, oh, yes yes that's a very good point so in order to scan these samples first they had to be sealed in a nitrogen environment which meant um, sealing them inside multiple layers of teflon bags before they could then be transferred to the ct scanner and once once they're fully sealed inside three layers of teflon bagging then they can be transferred into the CT lab okay. and put on, side of a, on top of a pedestal inside the scanner. And what, the, what that does is it, um, it beams x-rays directly at and through the rock. And, and through the three layers of Teflon. Yes, yes. Okay. So the Teflon is, is very low density compared to the rock, so it doesn't really um, attenuate the x-rays very much. Okay. And it's very easy to crop that out in your resulting images. Right, sweet. <laughs> um, the, what you're interested in is how the rock itself attenuates the x-rays. So according to how dense the different minerals are that are present within the rock, it will attenuate the x-rays more or less. And after Based they pass... Based on what material of, of rock you're talking about. Yes, yes. Okay. And, and what, what minerals it's composed of. Right. And so those x-rays eventually pass through the rock and hit a detector on the back behind the rock. And then the rock gets rotated a fraction, a, a couple of degrees or something, or less than a degree in some cases, just depending how you set things up. And, and, then, and then you do it again, all the way around until you've imaged the entire rock that way. And then there's um, 3D software that can reconstruct all of those uh, two-dimensional images to right. form a 3D uh, map of the interior of the rock. Okay, because, yeah, the, how do you get the pictures of the interior is another question that's been <laughs> bouncing around back there. I can see how you can get pictures of what you can see, but how you get images of what you can't see yes, is, yes. is really fascinating. And then the, you, you were going to tell me how it got the fusion part? Yes, yes. And one thing I'll mention, too, just um, 
just to mention this is that um, the the images of the exterior of the sample are in color, despite the fact that sometimes when you look at the rocks in the viewer on the Astromaterials 3D, they look very toned in right. gray yeah. or white or black. So, um, but they are in color, but the interior images are black and white because they are X-ray. No, so. Okay. I always like to point that out. Um, Don't but, be disappointed. Don't complain that they're not. <laughs> <laughs> you're not going to see crystals in yeah. the yeah in the color that they reflect light or refract light. Yeah. So um, yeah. So um, the fusion was was really a big part of the innovation of this project. Um, there, there at the time when we developed the idea, there wasn't a way to correlate two separate um, models that had been formed in in separate coordinate systems um, and to fuse them. And this was really the brainchild of of Kevin Beaulieu. And he did our he he really worked through the first stage of of that development and then handed it off to um, my colleague Joseph Abersold, who took it on from there. And essentially where we landed with it is that we are able to use two two um, software programs, one to develop the um, the initial model of the interior. Well, it's actually three different software. So we have one software that develops the exterior imagery that ingests all, right. all of my photos that I take in the lab of the of the of the exterior of the rock and then creates the 3D model of the the texture, the exterior exterior. Then there's the CT data and we use one software to reconstruct that model and remove the bag that you know the, the <laughs> that you learned about yeah. um, that protects the rock while it's being scanned so we remove the bag and then we ingest both of those two models the interior and the exterior into another software where we're able to coordinate them into a single coordinate system however we can't output that in as a as an, a single object um, so we then had to work with um, the software engineering mastermind, um, Ben Feist, who was in charge of essentially creating a software uh, program that could do this in a browser. So wow. the idea is, is that, it, yeah, you could, the output, you know, the, the, the fused model, if you had the software, you could you could visualize it. This software was is not open source. It's extremely expensive and it's very limited in terms of how you can use it. We wanted something that was user-friendly, that was accessible by anybody on a browser. And so this was a great leap in, in thinking, how do you create something that can process an enormous amount of data instantaneously in real time for a viewer on somebody's laptop mm -hmm. or cell phone um, and... And so this was the great work of of uh, my colleague Ben, who devised a way to to do this for us. So so the fusion that we that we like to call it actually happens for you in what's called the Explorer application. That's part of the Astromaterials 3D website. Ben Feist has been a guest on the podcast before too. We talked about some of the not this, but some of the other things that he's made. And I, but I was getting to the point to to talk about the browser because, yeah. as cool as all of the rest of this is, without that browser, I couldn't see what you're talking about. Correct. Um, yeah. What is what is there to to tell the people about how you know where you can go and how you can you any all of you uh, can can see the models that you guys have created. Absolutely. Well, um, you know, we we worked we worked very hard over over 2020 um, to create a visual experience, a visceral experience um, through the website that would allow people to to experience the story that we were trying to tell. Right. So um, another of my colleagues, David Charney, who's a um, graphic designer and um, has an enormous amount of experience working with interactive design, um, specifically for science um, um, museums. Um, and so he, he brought an incredible uh, breadth of knowledge and an insight into how we could, how we could actualize 
this this goal of making a world. We wanted to make a world mm-hmm. to go explore rocks in, right? Um, and so, so this was this was a lot of fun. Um, we had a great time, actually. You know, really thinking through creative ideas. Um, we worked with the curators specifically, um, the meteorite curators, in terms of figuring out how do we represent the inner solar system in such a way that we can talk about where these rocks come from. Because we wanted from the very beginning, we wanted people to understand not intellectually where they come from, but we wanted people to feel like they were there, that you're there on the moon, that you're there in the solar system. You're, you can see right where this rock came from, and then you can explore the rocks that come from that area that we have currently in the, brow- in, mm-hmm. in, in the collection. A virtual collection, um, you know. So it's really meant to be a, a virtual library, but also um, a way to engage your imagination. And and um, you know, I write, I write stories. I write a biography for each of each of the rocks. Okay. Um, cool. That is under a section when you, when you go to the rocks page, um, you'll see um, right under the model. You'll see it says every. Every rock tells a story, and and so there's a story there um, for each of the rocks. It's somewhat based on, um, you know, I researched the the cosmochemical information, the the planetary processes, and then some of the cultural stories, and work with the curators to to express something that's that might invigorate your imagination. And in case we haven't made the distinction often enough, these are, are images not just of rocks from Earth's moon, but meteorites that have been found in Antarctica. Correct. And maybe someday other meteorites or other cosmic stuff that has been uh, found and returned to Earth and maybe someday from other planets. Yes, indeed. I mean, um, we are... Yes, I mean you're exactly right. So the the meteorite uh, collection has rocks um, that fell to Earth, um, but they originate from Mars, or they originate from the Moon, or um, the asteroid Vesta, um, and then other unknown planetary bodies that smashed up and are now mm-hmm. fragments. Source um, unknown. Source unknown, or source sort of known. Like they know, they know, <laughs> you know, they know chemically that it's a, may relate to a particular planet body type, but they don't know what that planet body is. But they mm. they can correlate it to other fragments from the that that same type of of asteroid. But um, but yes, you're exactly right. We are um looking forward to to current and and future missions. So. The Astromaterials Project and team right now is um, currently working on small sample uh, developing technologies for for small sample imaging. So by small sample, I mean anywhere from like a millimeter to, you know, maybe 12 millimeters, um, because a lot of the the current and future missions are are proposing to or, or are returning samples that are within that that scale. And so it's an entirely different scale than the one that we have created for big, the current. Big moon rocks. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're we're avidly working on that in the hopes um, of of being able to share rocks from uh, Osiris Rex next year when they when they return and, you know, even Hayabusa 2, which which has already landed. Right. And then uh, and then we'll see. There's still Mars and Artemis coming down the pike. You got any sense of how much the website is being accessed and by whom? Yes, um, to some degree. I mean, it's hard to to track some of those numbers, um, but you know, we we know it's tens of thousands of people. Okay, um, and we know that um, you know it, the the. The reach of the project is just starting to come back to us now. In fact, we're about to launch uh, a new section on the on the website that we're calling "Scene Science Engagement Education and News." Mm. And so each of these will be, you know, places where Astromaterials 3D is being seen in the world. Like there, we have um, scientific papers that are being published using the data that we have Great. publicly available. So, so that's important. That you know, because this was funded through through a NASA research grant, and um, it is within the public domain. 
all of the data that we've collected is publicly available through the website. So anybody can download a full resolution or a web resolution 3D model of any of the rocks. And you can also download the XCT data uh, of any of the rocks that we have have, have um, taken XCT data of. So um, that's hu huge because it, it means that oh, the yeah. research community has full access. And but also we have artists who are who are using the models to create works, and you know gamers who are ingesting the three D models into virtual worlds. Wow. In fact, that's happening here um, at the center for astronaut training and and that sort of thing. So so it's it's um, it was fun when we first launched in twenty twenty. There were um, there were articles all over the world in, in every language. Mm -hmm. And so it's been really fun to be able to see the world um, interact with this. I've played website. around in there some myself, and I don't understand the scientific part of it, but the images are, are just fascinating to look at. And uh, congratulations on, on what you've done with all of that. We're looking forward to see more. Thank from you. other places. Thank Erica so Blumenfeld much. and Very Jeremy exciting. Kent, thank you for coming, talking with us about this, this great project. Thank you so much, Pat. Yes, thank you for having us. It was December 1972, 50 years ago, give or take, when Apollo 17 astronauts Gene Cernan and Jack Schmidt left the surface of the moon. The flights of the Apollo program concluded, but the scientific discoveries out of that program have never stopped. Scientists have studied the lunar samples retrieved during Apollo consistently over the years. In early 2022, an original Apollo 17 sample container was opened for the first time to provide new samples that could be examined using methods that didn't exist back then. And today there is new technology that makes it possible for anyone with an Internet connection to get a close-up look at samples from the moon and meteorites recovered in Antarctica. You can check it out at aries.jsc.nasa.gov astromaterials 3d that's the numeral three astromaterials 3d the link is in the transcript on our site i'll remind you that you can go online to keep up with all things nasa at nasa.gov in fact you can get all the nasa news you want delivered to you every week go to nasa.gov subscribe to sign up for the nasa newsletter you can find the full catalog of all of our podcast episodes by going to nasa.gov slash podcasts and scrolling to our name. You can find all of the other NASA podcasts right there at the same spot where you can find us, nasa.gov slash podcasts. This episode was recorded on October 18th, 2022. Thanks to Will Flato, Heidi Lavelle, Belinda Polito, Jaden Jennings, and Chelsea Bayarte for their help with the production and to Erica Blumenfeld and Jeremy Kent for their work on this project and for letting us all in on the story. We'll be back next week.